Well, understanding the meaning of a phrase or saying is crucially important if nothing else or if for nothing else for your own ego's sake. For example, I can recall more than one occasion with more than one person, although I won't mention names, where a conversation was taking place regarding the right of the individual to choose to terminate their life. The term for this is euthanasia. And upon hearing the term, this person asked, well, what about the youth in Africa and in Europe? Again, I'm not going to mention names. (laughs) Uh, As a kid, I can't wonder how many of us felt maybe in the likes of Captain America or Batman or Superman when the waitress would come and ask, would you like a super salad? Ooh, that one didn't hit. A super salad? Okay. Well, it wasn't until my older years that I realized that old-timer's disease wasn't actually old-timer's disease. It was Alzheimer's disease. Who's been there? Maybe? Okay. There's an old military story of an order that was issued saying this, send reinforcements, we're going to advance. And as it was passed from one soldier to the next or through the walkie-talkies, the end message was this, it was send three and four pence, we are going to a dance. (laughs) Now these are seemingly lighthearted misunderstandings, and yet we may well perceive that other misunderstandings can have more severe consequences. This evening, we'll be considering a passage that perhaps carries the most potency of any in the Bible. The power in these few verses, when understood correctly, have great opportunity to make a positive influence, and yet when misused or understood incorrectly, have great opportunity to mislead people. When properly grasped and received, this passage, friends, captures a truth that ought to shake you to your bones. It's one that's as evangelistic as any verse in the Bible, and yet, even from my own study of it, stirring for the believer as well. And the passage I'm talking about are the verses that surround John chapter 6, verse 56. So if you've got a Bible, turn there. In coming to this verse or passage with absolutely no context, no understanding of the Bible as a whole, and recognizing that we have a sinful heart bent towards self-righteousness, Terrible misunderstandings have been taken from this passage. And in particular, I'm referring to the doctrine of transubstantiation believed and practiced by the Roman Catholic Church. As an introduction to our study here this evening, transubstantiation is the belief that in communion, or as they call it, the Eucharist, that the bread literally becomes the body of Christ and the wine or juice literally literally becomes Jesus' blood. And you should know that they themselves will affirm this. Just get your hands on any literature or go to any website, and they will use this text as a proof text. And although I firmly believe that by the end of the night, you'll be able to see this clearly for yourselves, I want to just give you four quick points or reasons why John 6.56 and the surrounding context cannot, I mean cannot, be taken to refer to transubstantiation. Number one, the word that we'll see here in a moment is a different word altogether than the same word that Jesus uses over and over and over again in the communion passages. This word is sarx, which means flesh. Any communion passage uses uses the word soma, which is body. Number two, and I think these get increasingly relevant. Number two, as we, we will see, Jesus is speaking metaphorically throughout the entire context of John chapter six. And as such, the only proper interpretation of this passage is to take it metaphorically or figuratively also. And some will say, well, look, he doesn't say it's like this. He just says it is. And I would say, 
Go study the difference between a simile and a metaphor, right? This is a metaphor. Number three, the Lord's table has not yet been instituted. So if he were talking about communion, no one would have any idea what he's talking about. Communion wasn't instituted until the week of the cross. In fact, I think it was the night before when he sat and implemented, this is my body shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when he implemented it, he did it with clear instruction that it was to be done in remembrance of him. So again, totally unaffiliated context in terms of Jesus's ministry. And fourthly, and this is the most important one, this just flies in the face of everything else, is that Jesus said, if you partake of his flesh, you have eternal life. And if we're going to take this literally, that would mean that someone could take communion and have eternal life, which means that you can do a deed or you can do some sort of righteous act and earn eternal life. And friends, what does the Bible say about this? This is a well-read group, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith, not by works, so that no one may boast. And I just think of Galatians 2.21. Paul said, if righteousness comes through the law, or in other words, if righteousness comes through doing things, then Christ died needlessly, right? Christ died needlessly. And so I stand here, friends, and I can say unashamed that this is a heretical teaching. It's a heretical teaching based on a misinterpretation of a passage that I hope is going to be cleared up tonight. And I hope that we can come away with the true meaning and takeaway from this passage that, again, is going to stir our bones and really rock you to your core, I hope. So let's pray and we'll dig in. Father, thank you for time to examine your word, to dig into it, Lord. And we want to get it right, Lord. We know that uh, there is a wrong, there are many wrong interpretations to your word, and there is one correct interpretation. So, Lord, would we do the hard work as a group to rightly divide the word of truth. Lord, particularly with this passage, God, would we uncover just the the wonderful gospel truth that we're going to see tonight. Would it impact believers and unbelievers alike? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So to kind of get a running start into the gospel of John, and particularly John chapter 6, I want to survey what's happened in John so far. In John chapter 2, Jesus is at a wedding where the bride and groom are highly unprepared. And if you've ever been in a wedding like this, it can be a little awkward when they run out of food or cake or juice uh, or whatever they're serving. And so Jesus really steps in and saves the day. And at the same time, he begins his public ministry. He turns the water into wine in John chapter 2. In John chapter 3, he talks with uh, the religious leader named Nicodemus about the topic of eternal life which, by the way, would have been a perfect place to talk about uh, communion if it had anything to do with salvation, but he doesn't. He talks about what? In John 3.3, 3, he talks about being born again. He says, you must be born again. And then in John chapter 4, he interacts with the woman at the well. And I want to look at the end of John chapter 4, actually, because here Jesus begins using food in a figurative sense. John chapter 4, verse 31, it says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So we might simplify this passage by saying Jesus' sustenance His sustenance was to do the will of the Father. His food, his spiritual food, was to do that which was pleasing to God the Father. And that's important. It's going to come into play later. The next time, though, food enters the picture is chapter 6. And it enters in a huge way. 
In John chapter 6, verses 1 to 14, your subtitle might say something like Christ feeds 5,000 or something like that. But a close reading of this passage actually says that there were 5,000 men, which in all likelihood means that there were probably more like 20,000 people altogether, including women and children. And so Jesus feeds 20,000 people. I want you to just stop and, and picture that for a moment. Bobcat Stadium, that's about the capacity, holds 20,000 people. And you've seen the halftime scene, right, when people run out and are tailgating. I want you to imagine one man feeding 20,000 people. And what's even more impressive is that the text says that they ate until they were full. So he feeds 20,000 people until they were full. And what's the most incredible part of this? He used five loaves of bread and two fish from a, a little kid that happened to be there. And these weren't big French bread loaves. These were little wafers. Basically, five big crackers and two fish. He fed 20,000 people to the point of them being full. Verses 11 and 12 of John chapter 6 says they ate until they were full. And yet, there's even a more miraculous point. Then he assigns his 12 disciples. He gives them each a basket. And he says, I want you to go collect the remains of this feeding. And you want to know what? All 12 of them took a basket and filled their basket full of leftovers. It was, in a sense, a further revelation to his disciples of the miraculous nature of this miracle. They each collected more food than was started with as a whole. Miraculous, right? Miraculous feeding. Again, in verse, look at chapter 6, verse 13. The 12 gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. There, and then in verse 14, I believe Jesus really gives his purpose for doing this, which was to affirm that he had come from God. In verse 14, he says, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Now, this is important, and the reason I want to look at this is because the impact of this miraculous feeding wasn't done in verse 14. In fact, look at verse 22, and you'll see the first words of verse 22 say, The next day the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no small boat there. And if you keep reading, they eventually find Jesus, catch up with him, and want to continue following him. And really, beginning in verse 26, all the way to verse 71 of John chapter 6, almost 50 verses record a conversation between Jesus and these people who had seen him do this miracle the day before. Now, for the sake of time, we're not going to consider every detail within this chunk. I want to streamline the process, though, and I want to give you what I believe to be the big idea from this passage and show you that and then hone in on John 6:56. And I believe the big idea, if we boil it down to one thing, is this. It's life. In this chapter, Jesus is talking about life. True spiritual life, eternal life, is the focus of this chapter. Look at verse 26. It says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. <laughs> right? And so here's the scene. Jesus fed all these people. And it's just, I mean, it, it reminds me of Catapalooza, right? The college students. Which booths do you go to at Catapalooza? I know if I'm there, I'm going to the pizza booth, the booth with the cake pops, and with any candy, 
right? And I don't care what they're going to sell me. I'm going to sign up for whatever they're doing just to get whatever food they're giving me, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, totally. I know exactly about your program. Yeah, I'll, I'll be there, right? This is the exact scenario, right? The people f- were fed by Jesus, and here they come the next day looking to get fed again, right? And in reality, if they would have been listening to what Jesus said in verses 26 and 27, the conversation could have been over, They could have all repented, believed in Jesus. The whole thing could have been done and we could have been on to John chapter seven. But that's not the case. So in John 6, 28, therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to them, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And if you're like me, we just pause there for a moment. If you're like me, I'm like, are you kidding me? He just fed 20,000 people with five crackers and two fish. What more sign do you want? But they demand another sign, right? They, they didn't just want a sign. What they really wanted was for Jesus to feed them in the same way like Moses had fed the people in Israel. They wanted six days a week for 40 years. Hey, keep it coming, Jesus. Keep the pizza coming, right? That's what they're after, They wanted their Messiah figure to cater to their own wants and needs. And so wisely, instead of doing what I would do, which is probably fire back something sarcastic regarding the day before, Jesus doesn't bicker with them, right? He doesn't get in this battle going back and forth. He continues to affirm the truth and proclaim the solution to their greatest need, which was life through him. Look at verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst." Verse verse 35 is really the monumental verse of this chapter. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And if you've read the Gospel of John, you know that 23 times in this Gospel, Jesus says, I am, connecting himself with Yahweh, the true God of Israel. And so here he affirms specifically that he is the bread of life, that whoever eats of him will never hunger and never thirst. And just to help us kind of to soak that in for a moment, I want you to think about maybe your favorite meal you've ever had. For me, it'd probably be some sort of steak dinner. And once you had that steak dinner, the next night, were you still satisfied? Well, maybe. Maybe if you ate a really big steak dinner. How about two days after? How about a week after? If you're like me, I had to eat again at some point. And not only did I have to eat, but I crave another steak dinner. I had an awesome steak dinner one time, but... I mean, if you give it a a year, less than a year, a month, less than a month, a week, I'm wanting another steak dinner. I'm definitely not going to last 10 years, right? It's not truly satisfying. You see the point, right? It's not truly satisfying. How about the best book you've ever read? You read one book. Are you done reading books for the rest of your life? Maybe if you're a college student, you're like, amen, right? (laughs) But no, if you're a reader, you read a book and you want to read another book. Here's an analogy. It just came to me. Movies, okay? You watch a movie. Is that the best movie? Oh, that's the best movie I ever saw. I'm done watching movies. 
No, there's just, guys, you see the point. There's just something that's not satisfying about anything else. The best milkshake. I just, I want another one someday, right? <laughs> and yet, what does Jesus say here that's so profound? He says, I am the bread of life. He who believes in me will not hunger and will never thirst. C.S. Lewis said this, I cannot find a cup of tea which is big enough or a book that is long enough. And he really hits on the reality here that Jesus is the only true satisfaction in life. He is the only sure fulfillment. And when you're in him, you have eternal life and you never hunger again. You never thirst again. The soul, the inner man and woman is satisfied. So Jesus is really giving the offer of a lifetime. He's offering them something so much better than the flaky manna of the Old Testament. He's offering them life, not just for a day, but forever and abundantly, life that would never run out. And he really continues this train of thought in verse 40. He says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And again in verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And I emphasized words in that because you see, Jesus is belaboring the point, almost redundantly so. He doesn't want there to be confusion, right? He wants to make it clear. And yet, what do you think happens? You guessed it, confusion. Look at verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Right? Guys, I, I mean, I don't even know if they understood what he was saying, but from that passage, we can guarantee they had no idea of the meaning of what he was saying. Right? I, I, I'm still struggling to think, how are you missing this? He's laid this out 12 times, and yet they ask, how can you give us flesh to eat? And so really, if the, if the Jews take a jab at Jesus, how can you give us flesh to eat? Jesus brings back the haymaker, right? If, if the bees are already swarming in the hive, Jesus bats the entire hive down and really stirs the pot. Look at verse 53, and now we enter our hard saying. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. So, <laughs> we see the hard saying, right? Hard, number one, maybe to understand, and maybe even for us to understand, but we can see for the original context it was hard to understand as well. And two, once we understand it, it's hard to take in. Right? The truth that Jesus is affirming here is that he has the authority to forgive sins and to grant life, which was a role or an office that only God alone could hold. Furthermore, he's saying that he's the only way to grant life. So this would have been a hard thing to take in. And furthermore, verse 59 adds, he said it in a synagogue, which 
To utter these apparent blasphemies in a synagogue as a teacher was even more offensive. So Jesus is literally tearing down the religious system of the day and rebuilding all spirituality on himself. He's tearing down every religious system and pointing to himself. This would have been a huge paradigm shift. And maybe you're in the same boat. Maybe this is hard for you to hear, hard for you to take in. Well, you're not alone. Look at verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Some versions say this is a hard saying, right? A little proof text for our series. (laughs) This is a hard saying. It's hard to take in. So this is our task, friends. I want, to, I want to understand this correctly, and then I want to apply it correctly. That's what we're going to do with the rest of our time. And backing up again, there's several things that would have disturbed the audience and perhaps even infuriated them. Among the Jewish crowd, there would have undoubtedly been Sadducees. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about Pharisees. Sadducees were another religious group of leaders who liked the Pharisees, they were like them in some ways, but they had some different views. And one of these views that was really unique is that they didn't believe in any resurrection at all. They really didn't like talking about spiritual things, and they didn't believe in a resurrection. Well, in light of reading this passage so far, maybe you see where a clash would have already occurred. I counted four separate times that Jesus said he will raise up believers on the last day. Anyone who believes in him, he will raise up on the last day. And so this would have been a stumbling block for the religious systems that were man-made of the Sadducees. But it also would have been, some of the things he said would have been a huge stumbling block for the average Jewish listener as well. For example, the mention of blood here would have been extremely offensive and even blasphemous from the average Jew's perspective. According to the Mosaic Dietary Law, catch this, Eating an animal's meat with the blood still in it was forbidden. Blood was considered unclean and defiling. Furthermore, the blood is where the life was, and the blood belonged to God. And so God forbid eating the blood in an animal. And yet, what does Jesus say? You can imagine the reaction when Jesus says, you must drink my blood. You got to drink it. Hmm. So in light of their commitment to keeping the external code of the law, they not only missed Jesus' point, but I would argue they missed the point of the law from the get-go. And we'll get, on, we'll get into that in our community groups as we study the Sermon on the Mount. Essentially, these followers were saying something like this, man, I mean, that whole feeding thing you did yesterday, Jesus, that was pretty great, but now you're getting a little wacky here. Can we just go back to where you were giving us bread and fish again? Because this stuff you're saying now, I'm not sure we're really tracking It doesn't fit with our religious system. And you know, Jesus wasn't fooled. He knew what was in their hearts. He knew that it wasn't a matter of religious conscience, but it was a matter of their attempt at self-righteousness achieved through the law. It was a matter of their hardness of heart toward the good news that he brought, that he offered life in himself. And that's why, look at verse 64. That's why Jesus said in 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. Right? He knew this. For Jesus knew from the beginning that there were who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. In other words, many didn't believe in him. They didn't trust in him. They didn't follow him. 
and they therefore rejected the life that he offered. So with that all as context, I want to hone in on 53 to 56 and figure out what in the world does this mean when he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Verse 56, for he says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. How does all this fit together? That's what I want to answer and really using the context to answer this. And so I want to begin by recalling that it was actually the crowd who first introduced food into the conversation, right? In verse 31, they said, Moses, well, let me read it. Our fathers ate in the manna in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so Jesus had already used food as an analogy in chapter four, maybe to set this conversation up. But really coming into chapter six of John's gospel, Jesus has one thing in mind, and that is life in him. And as he engages in this conversation, he really is going to use whatever means possible to communicate that. And really, they express a felt need, and Jesus turns it around and shows them their greater need. I think it's just incredible that they bring up food, and then Jesus uses food for the rest of this chapter to explain life in him. Again, the point that he is hitting at is that there is life in him. And Jesus uses their example, actually, to show that, to demonstrate that. Catch this. Unlike the manna, right? He's comparing the Old Testament and the New Testament, Old Testament and him. Unlike the manna in the wilderness, Jesus says he's the true bread. And while the manna was given just to Israel, Jesus's offer was to everyone who would believe. And while the manna bread in the wilderness was eaten to temporarily satisfy hunger and to temporarily sustain, taking in Jesus permanently satisfies the internal hunger of the soul and it sustains forever. And while eating the bread in the wilderness, one would eventually die, Jesus offered bread that would last to eternal life. So Jesus uses their own example and flips it on its head and says, I am far greater than that example you just brought up. And in the midst of making this comparison, he corrects their errant view, right? They said, Moses gave us this bread. He says, no, actually, my father gave them the bread, just like the father has sent me from heaven. And so verses 22 to 51, just to kind of get a a big view again, 22 to 51 deal with the provision of the bread. God had provided the manna in the Old Testament and God had provided the sun, right? He came down from heaven. And then verses 53 to 58, our text of consideration, it really deals with the appropriation of the bread. It really then narrows in on the audience. Jesus is teaching for 40 verses and then he hones in on, here's what you're to do with this. It really answers the question, okay, what's this matter to me? How do I apply this bread? And that's when Jesus says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And I just want to point this out, guys. (laughs) Uh, Have you ever talked with someone who's a circular thinker or maybe a rabbit trail thinker? And here you're talking and you're talking all of a sudden, here we go. I was just in a meeting with some older gentlemen the other day, and we're talking about uh, a trip that may happen soon, and uh, it's exciting. And next thing I know, we're getting a lecture on St. Jerome and uh, the 4th century church and Roman Catholicism. And kind of looked at the other guy and thought, how did we get here? And uh, I mean, bless their hearts, right? We love rabbit trail thinkers, right? And circular thinkers even better. Just same thing over and over and over again. Like, yep, I know where you're going now. Um, why am I bringing this up? I do have a reason. <laughs> 
Wow, I just made my own point. Uh, <laughs> Jesus was not a circular thinker. Jesus was not a rabbit trail thinker. Jesus was the most linear thinker I think I've ever seen. In fact, he was so linear, he would oftentimes just skip several steps and jump to the very end, right? He would get right to the point every single time. And here's why I'm bringing this up. There is no textual reason to believe Jesus has shifted his focus from the topic of eternal life to now something totally different. Further, there's no reason to believe he's been talking about life in him, salvation, and now all of a sudden he's going to start talking about communion. Do you see where we're going with this? Jesus is talking about the same thing. He has one message to give, and it's eternal life in him. And so as we get to 53 to 56, that must be our context and our frame of mind. Figurative usage all the way through, eternal life is the topic. Right? Jesus wasn't the gingerbread man. He wasn't literally made of bread. He's not the Kool-Aid man. He's not literally made of wine. Anyone can know. He is speaking figuratively here. And so, to properly understand this, I want us to dig into two terms. I want us to understand the blood and the flesh. Because if we're going to understand, what is he saying when he says, eat my flesh, drink my blood, how does that pertain to eternal life? And guys, this, is, this blew my mind as I discovered this. So, tune in. Five times in this passage, Jesus says he came down from heaven. And in conjunction with the bread analogy, Jesus is getting at the point that one must accept this truth. And track with me here. In order to have life, the first step is to accept that Jesus came down from heaven and that he's the son of God in flesh. In other words, we must accept who Jesus is, right? But is that all that's required for salvation? No, there, it's necessary. We, in order to be saved, you have to believe that Jesus is who he said he was, but you also must believe in the work that he came to accomplish. And this is where the blood enters in. The blood was an allusion, a direct allusion to the cross that Jesus would, would take. In order to have life, you must not only believe that Jesus is who he said he was, but you also must place your faith and trust in his atoning work on the cross for our sins. The blood of Jesus had to be spilled for our sake. If there's no blood, there's no salvation. Again, life is in the blood and God's payment for sin is life. Therefore, blood had to be shed. As Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And yet, we know that Jesus did shed his blood. And the result of this was redemption for all those who would put their faith in him. One who receives Jesus and takes his own life into themselves receives the life that he offers. And that's, to me, it just makes a verse like Acts 20, 28 pop when it says that the elders are to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. 1 Peter 1, 18, knowing that you were redeemed, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile ways of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. In a sentence, friends, here's how I would explain this. You must receive the person and the work of Christ. In other words, you must eat his flesh and behold him and you must drink his blood. Now, it makes sense that he began with the bread analogy. If you track through this passage, he's only talking about bread for most of it, and then all of a sudden, the blood enters in. And that makes sense, because before we even look to the cross, I would ask the question, who cares? Right? Who cares about someone who's hung on a cross? 
I need to know who that person is before I even care about the cross. There needs to be some significance to the person hanging on that cross first. So Jesus says, you got to eat, the, you gotta eat, right? eat my flesh. I'm the bread that came out of heaven. He's talking about beholding him as a person. But once we understand who he is, then the cross makes sense. Then the cross pops, and it all of a sudden has profound significance. Look at verse 40 again. Verse 40 parallels verse 54, and I think it helps us understand this. He says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So what is eating his flesh and drinking his blood? Well, simply put, it's beholding the Son and believing in him. It's accepting the truth that he is the Son of God, that he is the great God-man in one person, 100% both, and it is believing in his efficacious work on the cross for our sin. The work that he did on the cross was effective to cover our sin. That's what eating his flesh and drinking his blood is. And really, there isn't a more masterful analogy to explain this concept than eating bread. Think about this, just like one ingests bread when he eats it, and just like one takes bread in, the condition for eternal life is that we take in Jesus. We absorb Jesus into our being. And when you eat bread, the bread becomes part of you. And oftentimes, the more bread you eat, the more of you there is, right? Particularly with Twinkies, if that's your form of bread. But you get the point. When you eat something like bread, it becomes, the most, it becomes part of you. And I want to submit this, eating something is the most intimate form of reception possible. If I give you a gift, say something for your house, and I come over and I see it hung on the wall or on a shelf, I understand you have received my gift, right? Now, if I see it in a box smashed up next to the trash can, I can assume you did not receive my gift, okay? Or, for example, let's say when you were a kid, you opened your Christmas present from grandma and you got those ugly hand-knit socks or that ugly hand-knit sweater that was made out of the 70s shag carpet, right? And it's like, oh my goodness. And your mom, bless her heart, what'd she make you do? She made you wear that sweater at least one time. And that one time was when grandma came over the very next time to show her that you had received that gift, right? That you wanted to communicate reception, you haven't seen someone for a while, right? Bros, if you haven't, seen a, you haven't seen one of your bros for a while, you know, you maybe give them one of these or a bro hug, right? You do something like that. Girls, I don't know what you do. It's like, oh my gosh, and we hug and, you know. Well, both, I mean, whether you're girls or guys, you're probably going to hug. You receive one another. You take one another in with a hug of, maybe it's an A-frame hug, right? You take one another in somehow. Friends, catch this. Eating something is the most intimate form. If you think about it, the int most intimate form of reception possible. If the point that Jesus wants to make is that we need to receive him and take him in, there is no greater analogy than eating food to explain this concept. When you eat bread, the bread literally becomes one with you. When you eat bread, the bread literally sustains you. The bread gives you energy. The bread gives you life. We could just simplify it and say, we need bread, right? 
We need bread. In the same way, friends, you must take in Christ. He must be your sustenance. He must be your driving passion, your energy. He must be our life and our livelihood. And I'll just say this, we need Jesus in order to live. He said he is the bread of life. He's the true food. And without him, you will die. You will die physically and spiritually. Well, and in case Jesus' followers had confused the issue, I want you to look at verse 63, because Jesus clarifies it once more for us. He said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you... And let me ask, Jesus, what, what were the words about that you just spoke to us? The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So Jesus makes it plain what he's talking about. So as we kind of begin to wind down, I want to ask, why the hard saying? Why the difficult language? Why doesn't Jesus say this less offensively and less crude? Why not just state it in a straightforward manner? And simply put, I would just say he already did, right? In fact, if you count, if you read from 22 to the end of this chapter, you'll count 12 times Jesus states that he himself is the source of eternal life. 12 times, and yet it went unreceived. So in one last effort to break through their hardened hearts, Jesus puts it bluntly and in polarizing terms. They couldn't just follow him and semi-agree with his teaching and continue to get their fill of bread and fish. They couldn't just fill their stomachs anymore. Jesus is setting the bar high. He's drawn the line in the sand and saying, listen, this is what it takes to follow me. You want eternal life? This is what it takes. He says that in order to have true spiritual life, which is the purpose of our lives, you must have him in you. You've got to have union with Christ. Friends, don't miss what I'm saying. You have to be unified with Christ. And this is not, <laughs> this is not a foreign concept to Scripture. Listen, I'm going to blitz you with Scripture for a moment. John 15, verse 5, Jesus speaking says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. John chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Romans chapter 8 Verse 9, he says, Paul, speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, But by doing But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Again, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new have come. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. 
Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Colossians chapter 1, verse 26 He's talking about the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of his mystery among the Gentiles. And what is this great mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ lives in you. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in him all fullness of, of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. 1 John chapter 3, verse 24. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And we know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. And lastly, 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Amen. Is Christ in you? Does Jesus live in you? Are you one with Jesus? Guys, you've got to be one with him. Don't let this fall on deaf ears. You must have Christ in you. That's what we just saw a hundred times. That was not exhaustive. Trust me. We just saw it at least ten times. Christ must be in you. And so I want to ask, just as a final closing, are you nibbling at Jesus? Are you examining the bread of life? Are you getting close to it? Are you smelling it, touching it, tasting it, perhaps, but, perhaps, but not truly taking him in? In order to have life, you must be one with him. It's not an ongoing action. It's a one-time event with ongoing results. And my fear is that there's some who are afraid to partake of something that good. My fear is that there's some who are putting this off for a later date. Some who are afraid to give up what the world has to offer when in reality they're giving up a crouton in exchange for the eternal bread of life. Let me ask you a few experientially based questions. Do you know the feeling of having your sins forgiven? The great weight of guilt being removed? The freedom of forgiveness? Do you know the intimacy of the relationship that comes from being one with Christ? The unity of having His Spirit in you, praying to the Father and knowing that your prayers are being heard. Do you know the feeling of desiring obedience due to an, the overwhelming weight of forgiveness that you've received? And do you rejoice in this truth? Do you love God's word? Do you love righteousness and growing in Christ-likeness? Friends, do you love those who have Christ living in them? Who, those who have tasted of the living bread and are one with him? In other words, do you love other believers and do you love worshiping and fellowshipping with other believers? These are just a few tests of a true believer and they're evidences of whether or not someone has taken in Jesus. Have you taken him in? If you're a believer, then praise God. Just want to remind you, in John chapter 6, in verse 65, Jesus profoundly speaks to the believers. 
And he says this, he says, For this reason I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted to him from the Father. No one can come unless it's been granted. Right? It's not your own doing. It's the grace of God. But I hope and pray that we can all together say this. Jesus said to the twelve, You don't want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter said this, and Lord, may this be our prayer. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Lord, we do want to pray together now, Lord, as we come before you. Lord, you are the true bread. You are true life, God. Partaking of you is the only thing that truly satisfies. Lord, it's the only thing that quenches the deepest desires of our souls. And Lord, we are too easily distracted. We are satisfied for far less, Lord, than the true and living bread. Lord, we really do settle for a crouton. God, would you stir hearts. Stir hearts, Lord. Would your spirit go forth even now, Lord. Grip those who think they know you, and yet deep down they know they don't. They know they don't really know you, God. Reside in them. Take up residence, Lord. Cause them to be born again. Give them new life. And Lord, for believers, would we be stirred? Would we be reminded of what we have in Christ? Lord, we often need to be told what is true of a Christian. So Lord, would this talk bear fruit in believers' lives, Lord, that we would continue to partake of the living bread and that our lives would be lived in light of that. Father, thank you for your word that it is clear. Thank you that you offer eternal life, Lord. Lord, I pray for those who misunderstand this passage that they would see the beauty of it when properly understood. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.